This week at Hope Point. So they're, they're marveling that blood of Christ that was spilled from a cross in Jerusalem went down Golgotha's hill out across Europe, across the Pacific and the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, all the way to, to Russia and to Mongolia and to China, all the way to North America and South America, so that anybody from any nation who's committed any sin can say, Jesus, forgive me, and they'll be in heaven. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. I don't know how many of you know this, but I I live with a singer. My wife is a singer of many songs. When she's not focused on a task that requires a, a lot of concentration, it's possible that a song might be emerging from her mouth. It might be a recent tune that we've learned at church, or she might reach all the way back to her Karen Carpenter days and be singing, We've Only Just Begun. But I cherish her, and her voice is good. I don't always cherish her singing in the house. So one of the most important apps I have on my phone when I'm trying to study at home is the ability to make white noise, brown noise, all sorts of mechanical noises so I can think while she's singing. My grandson is not a guy yet of a lot of words, or at least words that I I know. But I like when sometimes she's singing through the house, he's on my side, he'll say, no tig, no sing. No tig, no sing. I want to ask you this morning, what makes you sing? What is it that causes a song to emerge out of your heart? Maybe it is thinking back on glory days, whatever they were. 70s or 80s or 90s for you, whatever. What makes you sing? This morning, we're going to look at a brand new song that emerges out of the hearts of those in heaven. It's in Revelation chapter 15, and they never sung it until they got to heaven. And I'm going to read a few verses that may be a little confusing to you if you've not been in our series the past 14 months, but then we're going to get to the song, and it's just a glorious Song, And I'll explain the confusing verses as we go along. Revelation 15, I saw in heaven another great marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And here's the song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Every famous song that's ever been written has a story with the song that's about as interesting as the song itself. If you're a fan of Chicago and you hear 25 or 64, you know, well, it's probably better than that. But that great guitar riff that begins that is just known by everybody. And you go, what a random name for a song. 
And so when you read the story of Robert Lamb's writing of it, he, he wrote it because he was up all night in overlooking uh, his area where he lived in L.A., and he was trying to write a song and said the story is about the difficulty of writing a song. And he's out looking at the, the uh, he gets, sees a, a neon light in the distance in L.A. And the, the night is almost gone, morning is almost there. And he's, he, he's thinking about his inability to write. This is, and this is what he says, waiting for the break of day. Searching for something to say. Flashing lights against the sky, that neon light he's looking at. Giving up, I close my eyes, I just can't write. And so then he looks at his watch and he knows he wanted to have this done for the band by the time he, and he says, he looks and it's 25 minutes till four in the morning. But then he looks at an antique clock in the house where he's living and it's 26 minutes till four, which gave the title 25 or 26 to four. Very interesting how the, why that song has its title. You look at other songs like It Is Well With My Soul, written by a father who lost his wife and children at a sea wreck, in a, in a, a, an ocean, a wreck in the ocean, a shipwreck. And he writes of his faith in God after that. And then you, you look at songs, Rock of Ages, Augustus Top Lady wrote about that when he was caught in a storm and hid from the wrath of the storm in, in a rock. So every song has a reason. What was going on when it was written? John tells us what was going on in Revelation. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. This is the circumstances of the song that we are at the end of history and these believers are singing because they're watching God pour out his last judgments on the earth. Now, if you've been with us in this series of Revelation, you might be asking yourself, haven't we sort of seen the end before? Yeah, this is the third time we've seen the end. That's how the book is written. It's like watching a football game with three different camera angles filming the same ending of the game. It's not a different ending every time. It's just three different viewpoints. So we saw the world end with the... When Jesus undid the seals of the scroll, we saw the world end with the blowing of the trumpets. And now we see the world, the beginning of the end, with pouring out of these bowls of wrath, uh, which are really just natural disasters, which we'll see in Revelation chapter 16 next week. But these believers are singing because with the last bowl... There's seven of them with the last bowl that when it's poured out, earth is destroyed, which means it's time for the new earth to be created. So they're singing because 6,000 years of history, it's finished now. And the new earth is about to be given to the church. That's the occasion of the song, No More Waiting on, on God. Lisa was shopping at the Fresh Market uh, the, uh, somewhere over the weekend and ran into a friend there. She was describing a family sorrow that was deep indeed. And she said, we just long for the day when all sorrow is over. This is why they're singing in Revelation 15. All sorrow is about to be over because the last of God's judgments on earth are occurring. Now, there's also a place that the song is written. It's not just in heaven, 
But there's a place in heaven, and, and the, the writer describes this. I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire standing beside the, and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And I, I love the phrase at the beginning, the sea of glass. Um, when we were away uh, last Sunday, we were with some friends from Clemson that now live at the coast. And uh, they live in Beaufort. And Friday morning, I got up and I went out to the dock. And there was the Beaufort River not moving. It's just stunning. And when I, when I looked at that, I, a lot of things went through my head. I, I thought about, I, I thought about um, the reflection that we are to be of God. Everything on earth, we are to re, the way we live should reflect how God would have us live. I just looked at it also and I just thought about the peace that Jesus Christ brings to a life. And then I thought about beauty. And this really isn't what the message is about, but this little quote came to me, so I wanted to share it with you about why beauty is so important. Every glimpse of earthly beauty is a reflection of the infinite beauty of God that you long for more than anything else. That's why you love that picture or the real thing, which I did is because we are craving, what are we craving? We're craving beauty and every little earthly reminder of it. Oh, we can't wait to see him who is the author of all of that beauty. But also when I looked at that, I knew what I was preaching on when I came back to you. I also knew that that sea of glass, this is not the first time we've seen heaven described as a sea of glass. We saw it first in Revelation chapter 4. Read this to you. This is the first time we saw God on his throne in the book of Revelation. At once, I was in the spirit and there before me was the throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. So you have all of this tumult going on the throne, all sorts of lights and flashing and thunder. And before God is the picture of an ocean that's perfectly calm, which is almost like impossible that a sea can be calm. And I told you when we were in Revelation 4, so I'll remind you now that we're in Revelation 15, that God says the sea is calm to remind us that there will come a day when all calamity will be calm because a sea, the ocean, in literature and in biblical literature is a reminder of the choppy, violent, tumultuous nature of life that feels like an ocean out of control, especially at night. Scary. And God says, there will day, well, I will look at all evil. I will look at all, all injustice. I will look at all that is wrong and and God will say, cease. And just as he can calm a sea, just like God with one word could calm the worst day of the North Sea, 
One word. And we know that he can because we saw it in the, in the gospel when Jesus Christ looked at a very choppy, violent sea of Galilee. And with one word, he said, cease. And the Bible said the sea was perfectly calm. And he's going to do that in history. He's going to bring total calm to the world and to the universe and to our hearts. The storm will one day be over. So we, we love the We love the calm sea in Revelation 15 because it means that these people that are there in heaven that are singing that song right now, they're no longer suffering. And we just love that for them. And we love it for ourselves that we will soon, soon be joining them. Our suffering will be over. This is the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. One day you're suffering on earth And the next day, you're singing in heaven. Wow. Just like that. Now, every song has to have a title. And so this song in Revelation also has a title. It's called the Song of Moses and of the Lamb. They held harps, given them by God, and sang the Song of Moses and of the Lamb. And so that's the name of it. I I love this part of Revelation because it says that everybody in heaven... Is going to know how to play a musical instrument. Because I mean, I know a lot. Everybody wants to play a musical instrument. Everybody does. I mean, the, the band, they're, they're heroes. You know, we're, they're cool. and They all play an instrument. But everybody in Revelation 15 has a harp. Probably 10,000 more instruments, but it says harps here. I can't wait for Crazy Travis, the drummer. I can't wait to watch him just shred a harp solo in in heaven. It's called the song of Moses and of the Lamb. There's a reason why it's called the song of Moses. That comes from the second book of the Bible. It's a story of the Egyptian army chasing God's people Israel, driving them to the Red Sea, where the army intended there on the beach to slaughter two million men, women, and children. And there, when the situation was completely hopeless, God blew a mighty wind and caused the Red Sea to divide. Two walls of water, and even the seabed was dry, and God's people walked right through it to the other side. And when the Egyptian army tried to follow them on their horses and chariots, God caused the two walls of water to crash upon them, and the entire army was lost. Do you know what Israel did the first thing they did when they got to the other side? They took out their phones and started snapping selfies with the Red Sea in the background. And then for 40 years... They walked around the wilderness looking at their phones. That's not exactly how it happened. The first thing they did when they got to the other side is they sang. This is the song they sang. Exodus 15, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. 
So what do they say about God here at the end of verse 2? He's my Savior. He saved me. So what do saved people do? They sing. If you do not sing here in this place, it appears that you have nothing to sing about. Saved people sing loud. This is why the band works so hard in, in thinking about every word, every transition, every note to assist you in your singing. Because if God has saved you, your heart longs to sing. I heard it just before I came up here to pray, how much you loved singing that song. It's because you're saved. And let me tell you something, the band might work hard and we're, boy, we think about everything. If you look back on the sheet that Dean is you right now, Every single minute of this service is planned, including the clock that, because it's all part of nursery, turning the parking lot over. We think about everything, but let me tell you something. No matter how much the band plans, the loudest thing that should happen in this building or any church on any Sunday is not the band, but the voices of the church singing. God did not save guitars. He did not save drums. They can't sing, therefore we should be much louder than guitars and drums. So sing and sing loudly when you sing. Now let's look at the song choice in Revelation. It said that they sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. The reason it's called the song of Moses is as we said, Israel was facing enemies they couldn't handle. So we, when we talk about going to heaven, we say there's no way I'm gonna make it to heaven unless God delivers me from enemies. That's why it's called the song of Moses. But it's, listen, Satan wants the church to die. Culture wants the church to die. So those are huge adversaries working against us. But our main enemy in life is not Satan or culture. It's our flesh and our own sin nature. So the song in Revelation is called the song of the Lamb. I'll just say it like this. In order to remove our guilt, we needed more than just a big wind to blow across the ocean. We needed the Son of God to shed His blood on the cross. That's why it's called the song of the Lamb. Because 29 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus' cross is called the Lamb who shed His blood for our sins. You remember the first time we saw Him? Referred to as a lamb, Revelation 6, then I saw a lamb, that's Jesus, looking as if it had been slain, killed, standing at the center of the throne. So you got all of heaven looking at this lamb, Jesus, who died, shed his blood, 
And what do they do? They start singing. And this is the lyrics of their song. You can read it this afternoon. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so the reason why the people in Revelation 15 are so crazy excited is because this promise in Revelation 6-9 has come true by the time you get to the end of history in Revelation uh, 15 and said all nations will come and worship before you. So th- they're, they're marveling that blood of Christ that was spilled from a cross in Jerusalem went down Golgotha's hill out across Europe, across the Pacific and the Atlantic and the Mediterranean all the way to, to Russia and to Mongolia and to China all the way to North America and South America so that anybody from any nation who's committed any sin can say, Jesus, forgive me, and they'll be in heaven. That's why they're singing as they're watching all the nations come. They're watching God fulfill his promise to bring all the nations, to cleanse anybody, to cleanse any sinner who wants the stain of sin to be removed from their heart. I will say this again to you in a, maybe next week, but I, I want to make sure we emphasize this as we land this plane. This is what Revelation 15 is beginning to land the plane. It's the last of the judgments, and then we go home. But I want to say this. You'll not understand the book of Revelation unless you understand this. It is primarily a book of love. 22 chapters of God so loving the church that he is saying, no matter what adversity you face and weakness you possess, I'm going to bring you home. You're going to make it. I'm going to get you to the other side. It's, a, it's the greatest book of love in the Bible. It's what it's all about, is love. Love for the church. God loving his church. Let's see how God describes those of us who are struggling on earth on our way. These are the singers in Revelation 15 too. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. So here we're told that our battle in life, unlike Moses, is not against the Egyptians, but is against the powers of Satan that are known in the book of Revelation as the beast. We met them in Revelation 13. A beast from the ocean a beast from the sea. And we said that in all likelihood, it appears that Satan has poured his power into two primary institutions, a corrupt government that works against the church and corrupt religious teachers that also draw people falsely away from the church. So you got a, basically a corrupt state and a corrupt imitation church causing a vast amount of people to abandon abandon hope in, in God and, and leave Christ. This is, this, is what, this is what we're fighting against, the power of the beast in culture. And yet, they're victorious. They made it. That's why they're singing. Like, we made it. Like they woke up surprised in heaven. We made it. 
The beast in Revelation, as you can see here, is affiliated with the numbers of the number of its name. We saw that number, chapter 13. We don't need to go back, but it's the number 666, which is just another way of saying 666, corrupt man, corrupt man, corrupt man. It's just corruption in positions of high power is what the church is fighting against. And so they're singing. They're singing. They're singing. We need verses like this because it's hard to, on suffering days, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to believe in singing days. On suffering days, it's hard to believe there's going to be singing days. So we need this reminder. We're going to make it. You know, I tell you, if you looked at the church through the centuries, there would have been so many times where you would say at that particular part in the history of the church, their church is no more. It's not going to make it. Did anybody watch the Jacksonville Jaguars game against L.A. last night? Yeah, I'll tell you. I watched half of it. <laughs> If you know what I mean. When it got to be 27 to nothing, I said, there is no hope for Jacksonville. With one minute left in the first half, 27 nothing, off, you lost. They won 31-30. Sort of ticked I didn't watch that game. <laughs> But that's what many believers have felt like through the years as the culture looks at us and says, you're going to lose. Church, church is so messed up, so weak. We're going to lose. It seems like right now that, it does seem like right now we're losing in culture. It seems like it. Politicians are more corrupt than ever and yet are more shielded than ever from prosecution. With new eagerness, corporations are willing to promote immoral values just to increase their customer base and their profits. Educational institutions are zealous to divide parents and children and the values through school to divide the nuclear family. And rather than coming together in this church being just jam-packed Praying for revival, many people are actually leaving and abandoning the church in this generation because they're believing this unbelievably powerful false narrative of the culture that the real problem today is the church. So, what culture is hammering us through social media, hammering the world, problem is the church. Church is judgmental, church is bigoted, church is this, church is problems Christians. This is an amazing statement when you think about it. Here we are. We come in here. Some of us walking, a lot of us crawling. Having failed this week, ready to admit it. Ready to be told again that Christ will forgive you. Ready to seek a new infusion of the Holy Spirit's power. Like we got nothing to boast about. We're just coming here. Wanting to honor God and the church is the problem. That's the reason society's falling apart because people want to worship Jesus. That's the problem. 
No way could the problem be an immoral society, a violent society. No way could it be that. Yet this wicked, sin-loving, idol-making, God-rejecting culture says the problem is the church. Preaching of Christ is the problem. It's been this way from the beginning, though. If you would have been in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified and you would have been in that crowd, do you understand that when Jesus was put on the cross, the majority of the people in Jerusalem said that had to happen because Jesus is the problem. AD 64, July 19th, a fire broke out in Rome. It burned for nine days. Two-thirds of the city was destroyed. When it was over, Nero blamed the church for the fire. The penalty for arson in those days was you being burned, so he began burning Christians. And so if you had been in Rome during that time and you would have looked around and said, I don't know what they did, but they must have done something because they're all burned. Were all these Christians getting burned alive? The church is the problem. That's how it would have felt in Rome then. So we look at verses like this and we just say, this is amazing. Even though the power of the beast working against the church, looking like we're not going to win, all of a sudden it says, and they're, look, they had been victorious over the beast. Let's see, I'm going to try to write something just so you can see it. Oh, let's see. Oh, there it goes. Let's see if I can write this right here. So, said victorious. Oh, look at the victorious. And so, this is the Greek word Nikon. Uh, obviously, you, you see that gives us Nike. Okay. So, whenever you buy a pair of shoes, Nike, it, it's from the Greek word, it's, it is from the Greek word Nike, the verb form of it, Nikon, to experience victory or to, to triumph. And so this is what these believers in heaven have been experiencing is victory. But what I want you to understand as we close today is how does that victory occur? And it occurs through suffering. That's how God brings us to victory. He brings us to victory through a path of suffering. Do you remember in chapter 12 where we just were introduced to Satan who was uh, compared to a man-eating dragon? And it says, how did the church, how did Christians overcome him? This is, this is what it said. They triumphed. That's Nike. They experienced victory. They Nike'd over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So they experience victory through endurance, perseverance. You know, if you look at Nike, you know their phrase, just do it. Cool. I think it's cool. Got no problem with that. It's a great phrase. Just do it. But when you think about how does Nike look in the Bible, it's more of just endure it. Just persevere. Because sometimes your only assignment in life is to simply wait and let God bring about the victory as you suffer. You can't do anything about it right then. Just wait. Endure. Persevere. That's Nike. 
That's how you triumph. That's how the victory comes about. Do you remember when we saw all the great promises to the church at the beginning of Revelation? There were seven churches. They had seven promises. Every time we saw that, that phrase, to the one who's victorious, it's Nike. To the one who won't say Nikon, Nike, victory. And then that was repeated all those times. And here's, here's the answer for what it means to have that kind of victory. Revelation 2.26, to the one who is Nike, same word in Revelation 15. They were victorious, victorious, triumph, Nike. And does my will to the end. That's how you have victory in the Christian life. Endure, perseverance, until when? The end. You remember what God told us in Revelation 13 after he first introduced us to the power of the beast? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This is how you experience Nike. This is how you experience victory. Patient endurance. I'll tell you a story today of patient endurance. When a hero, a hero in my, uh, in my reading, I love to read about missionaries. This guy's name is Rosewell Graves. I stuck him in here at the last minute. So let me make sure I get his facts right so I can honor him. He, um, he moved to China when he was 23 years old, 1856. He grew up in Maryland. Wealthy family. His father was a doctor. He studied medicine as well, intended to be a doctor, until he went to a Christian conference where somebody opened his eyes to the needs of the world, of how many people who do not know about Christ. Sign me up. Here am I, send me. So finished his medical education and went to China as a single missionary in 1856. His closest friends while he were there were Charles and Eva Gallard. Remember, he's the only American, the only white guy in this region. He's lonely, only missionary. He's got, this, he's got a friendship, Charles and Eva Gallard. Seven years into that relationship, Charles was killed by a a typhoon. So now he's alone again, single missionary back. Well, in comforting Charles' wife, Eva, they fell in love and got married. And he even ad adopted Eva's son, Charles. Unfortunately, one year into their marriage, Eva died. So he returns to the States for a while. 1872, meets a woman named Jane Norris while he's in Baltimore. They get married. She returns to China with him. They serve in China for 16 years, and she dies. Single again. 1890, he meets Janie Sanford. They, move, they get married, move to China, and they establish the first school for the blind in China and a school for girls so they can get educated. He preached up and down through China. He established medical clinics all over China. He actually found that medicine was an unbelievable way of opening the door for preaching the gospel. Never abandoned the mercy ministry of medicine. He distributed thousands of Chinese tracts and New Testaments 
discipled hundreds of new pastors out of the Chinese churches to become leaders. There were so many opportunities for him to quit and be discouraged and come home. And yet, I love this quote from one of his letters that he wrote back in the midst of one of the difficult times. This is what he said. God is causing springs to burst forth in the desert. The water of life is welling up in this howling wilderness. So he died in 1912 after living and serving and preaching and dispensing medicine in China for 56 years. I told Lisa when I read his story, I said, I just will sit down with him and say, how did you do it? On the days where it felt like nothing was going right, years maybe, how'd you do it? And I think he simply believed the promises of Revelation 15. God's going to get us home. He's going to get us to the other side. And therefore, I can suffer now if I have to. I want to tell you today in closing, it will never feel right to persevere. (laughs) It always feels right to quit. It never feels right to endure pain. It always feels right to seek comfort. Persevering seldom feels right. So what in the world, what in the world could Jesus comfort you with today? The same thing he comforted rose well with the same thing he comforted the believers in Revelation 15. I'm going to get you to the other side. This is how we could say it. Jesus would say, I will give you victory. I will not forget you. I always see you. I am always with you. I will reward every sacrifice you make. I will reward every pain you endure. I promise I will bring you home. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.